As society seems to crumble around us, we make our way back to the foothills of the mountains. Rifles in hand, we set up our camp, and the light of our campfire filters up through the bases of the pine trees, and above the canopy of needles, we can see the cold stars in the dark night sky. We sit around the campfire, we laugh, we talk, we remember the issues of the past, and we look out beyond the pines into the dark veil of gray mist, and we see the movement, the shadows slumping around the ground, peering out through around the trees. The wild calls for us. Tonight, we talk. Around this campfire, thank you for joining me in the camp of the beyond. This is The Marauder Rises. How is it going, guys? Good evening. Um, so today I got banned off of Instagram again. Hooray. It's almost like we're um, living in a technocratic police and surveillance state. Almost just like it, right? Uh, I really don't care. Honestly, I'm just going to keep going. Um, am I going to make a new Instagram? I do not know. I don't even know. I haven't even tried yet. I don't know if my phone, if I've been IP banned or whatnot, but that's what happened last time. And I appealed <laughs> last time. I How I got my, how I was able to make a new Instagram account is I appealed to Instagram and claimed that they were discriminating against me, used their own tactic against them. And then they, I had, um, back when I was like a neocon, I had made a separate page and just kind of like, had that it was kind of like more of a uh social organization kind of like a, a fraternity style thing that it was about talking about like conservative politics and stuff like that and um so they gave me that one back they just they sent me like a, a message originally that said uh type this code to or click this link or something like that to reaccess your account and i clicked it and i was like holy crap it's they're going to give let me have my account back and it took me to that old account and I was like holy crap what is going on why did they even do this it almost seemed intentional like they were throwing me a bone or something like that but i have no idea i i i've 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 tried to reaccess my page and it's just not letting me so it says no page with that username exists so i for, for all that I know, my page is gone. And so, and it's not coming back. 
So I just continue from here. So I'm going to include my Telegram link in the uh, in the show notes. Um, I'm going to keep making this podcast, obviously, and um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, but I really don't get on there very much. I might get on Twitter a little bit more if I see that people actually want me to. But if you want to see like more posts, see me communicate, talk to me, whatever, just join my you know follow my Telegram page on my Telegram channel and a bunch of really cool guys, old Dirty Blasters in there. Shout out to that guy. He's a cool dude. Um, there's there's some guys in my Telegram channel that you can actually, uh, what's it called, a Telegram chat that you can learn from. Uh, I, I, I learn from. There's some cool guys in there. So anyways, um, tonight we're going to talk about uh, combat, uh, combat rifle builds for a civilian. It's going to be what you're going to learn is that these things are this conceptually from a conceptual uh, stance. This is like completely different from a military style rifle loadout. And whenever you build your rifle, it might not look different at all from the military style uh, build. But the what goes in behind it conceptually and what you have to use to back up the rifle is going to be completely different from a, from a, for a civilian than from a military perspective. So um, before I get into that, here my shaker bottle. It's because I just lifted weights a little bit ago, so I'll get into that. Um, Tonight, you know, it's last time we talked about the spooky stuff, the the skinwalkers and whatnot. Those are big nasties. But the real big nasties of the world, you know, they're not skinwalkers. They're, They're men, human beings. Ten, out, 10 times out of 10, you're more likely to be um, violated, killed, enslaved, whatever you want to say, uh, robbed from uh, a man than you are a skinwalker. You know, and the, this, they, the men are the big nasties. They're who you need to protect yourselves from. Uh, they're the ones that form massive, gigantic, uh, uh, tyrannical organizations that ev- inevitably rule over you they they decide whether you live and die they decide how you live your life you don't believe me okay you don't believe me i got a challenge for you i got a challenge for you if you don't believe me stop paying your taxes challenge stop paying your taxes now i'm not telling you to go break the law just so that, just so you know, I don't want this page to get destroyed. This is a this is a satirical challenge, uh, technocratic overlords, whoever you are. This is a satirical challenge to my to those people who who might be listening who who doubt me. Stop paying your taxes. Watch and see what happens. <laughs> just stop giving them money, and they will fall on you like hell. I. I think everybody intuitively knows this. Your life is ruled. Uh, and deep down, you on a basic level know this. You must protect yourself from men. Now, I don't tell you to go out and seek violence. I abhor violence, and I think you should too. The most dangerous, the most threatening thing that you could be to a tyrannical state is a peaceful person. The most threatening thing that you can be to a tyrannical state is someone who abhors violence. That doesn't mean that you're a pacifist. It means you're peaceful. Remember, peace is a choice. That 
peace is not achieved by disarming yourself. You become harmless when you disarm yourself. That's not peaceful. You're incapable of peace whenever you're harmless. Peace is an active choice by someone capable of producing harm, someone who chooses not to harm innocent people. That's peaceful. If you are peaceful, you're an awful threat to a tyrannical state. Why? Because you adamantly oppose the violence that they utilize to implement their will on innocent people. Ergo, you're a huge threat. You undermine them. Just by existence. Just by your mindset. Just by ad- adhering to certain moral and moral codes, certain, certain theological codes, that those of you who are Christian, you know, you're called to be like this. You're called to abhor violence. So <laughs> that's, I know that's painting people with a broad brush, but that's the calling. And if you, if you abhor violence and, but make yourself capable of producing violence whenever you need to defend innocence, defend what is right, then you will find yourself being an awful threat, an awful enemy the most feared enemy of a tyrannical state. Not that you fear them, that they fear you. So just remember that. I'm not telling you to go be violent. I'm telling you to be the opposite. But I am going to tell you how to prepare yourself. Gee whiz, my air conditioner just turned on it (laughs) above me and it sounded like a screech and I thought a skinwalker was jumping out of the closet at me. Um, So we're going to get into... Oh yeah, I was going to talk about a little bit about my... uh, weightlifting so tonight's uh well i'll get into this week i'm gonna hit this real quick so um this is my second week of filtering into my strength cycle so right now i'm tampering down on the volume i'm staying my volume is is going down right so what does that mean like i'm not incorporating as many working sets as i would um if i were to do a hypertrophy aka purely muscle building um, style of a workout. If I was doing a purely muscle building style of workout, volume would be high. In other words, the amount of sets and reps that I'd include in the workout would be high. And the intensity, aka the weight, would be medium to low. But in strength, whenever I'm doing strength, I'll do probably, I don't know, six to nine weeks of this. So probably about week four or five, I'll switch exercises or switch up my rep scheme so that whenever I hit my plateau, I can switch off of that real quick and change it up so that my musculature gets a real shock and they have it, my, my muscles have to adapt in order to uh, keep building up in strength. So right now I'm working on force production and strength, being able to push as much weight as possible. So right now I'm going three exercises. Each exercise is five by five, five, five reps for five. uh, I'm sorry, five sets for five reps. And so tonight I did, um, it was, uh, I'm like, it's later in the week right now. So I did a duplicate. Well, it's not a duplicate because it's not exactly the same, but it's a, it's a complementary routine to what I did to an earlier in the earlier in the week. So earlier in the week, I did a overhead press day. So again, today I did overhead press, same weight as earlier in the week, except I'm trying to do it a little bit quicker. So I'm trying to take that. That's 
an ideal way to do this is like if you perform the same lift for a strength style later in the week as you did earlier in the week, then you want to stay with the same weight, or but you take down your rest period just a little bit. So instead of resting for, say, a minute and a half, you just rest for a minute. And so that's going to get your body building up like more mitochondrial density in your in your musculature, uh, a little bit better on your nerves. Your, your nerves will be, get better, you know, recovering faster. Um, your, your muscles will learn to recover a little bit faster or at least be able to produce strength a little bit faster. Um, but anyways, the reason I cut down the working sets is one, because it's really freaking hard uh, pushing that much weight for a ton of sets. But two, because if you're including way too many working sets, especially if you're including like a lot of auxiliary movements, so that's like isolation movements and other complementing movements in the same workout, you're going to burn yourself out. Uh, you're going to shock your body so much day after day that your body's unable to recover. And recovery is a huge portion of strength training, of that specifically the force generation of the muscle. So um, you don't want to kill yourself by doing that. If you're doing strength training, which means lower reps with higher weight, you're going to want to take a little bit of the volume down and focus on those compound lifts to get those those numbers up for your weight. Um, and so the exercise that I did was standing overhead press, bent over rows with a um, underhand grip. So it's almost like doing a chin up, but you know, bent over row. And then I did, you know, a, a lot of guys like the the cheat curls for a compound exercise to like get their biceps flaming up. Something I've started doing is an RDL, a Romanian deadlift, to a curl, and so. Um, it's again, five by five. It's really not that much of a bicep exercise. It's more of a total body exercise and you really feel it in your back. Cause whenever you go up for a curl and it's that much weight, you've got to flex your lats really hard to stabilize those elbows so that they're tucked down to your sides. And then you're bringing that weight up and it's in front of your body. So your body's trying to not to lean over the weight and you know, you're trying not to round your back. So it's just a huge total body exercise. So for, for the, um, overhead press, I did 150 pounds, five by five. Um, the, uh, what was it called? The bent over row with an underhand grip. It was 215, five by five. And then 115 for the, uh, Romanian deadlift to bicep curl. So, and then I did a little bit of ab routine after that and then getting my protein in. But so there's that going to move on to the rifle builds for civilians. So what I'm going to talk about here is primarily associated with, um, you know, what a civilian would actually use a rifle for, uh, in a combative scenario, which is probably going to be, um, invasion by foreign military, uh, conquest by domestic military or, you know, otherwise some other form of a collapse event, such as like a, you know, what was coined by that <laughs> that goober nut and fancy for a long time like a without rule of law situation where there's been some sort of major climactic event that has disabled um governmental security and or at least not maybe not disabled government security but taking their focus away from defending you 
So what a lot of people don't understand about society is the peace that you see in society, um, you know, the relative peace of uh, everybody getting along, you not being murdered in your sleep, uh, people being able to drive on the same road every single day without butchering each other, slaughtering each other, destroying each other with each other's cars, stuff like that. That's maintained not by the government. That's maintained by mutual cooperation between people. The reason, ultimately, that I don't go around murdering everybody that I see is not because the government tells me not to do it. That's not the reason. And that's not the reason for 95 to 99% of people in society. The reason that people behave peacefully is because, well, for the vast majority of us, it's most convenient for us and most desirable for us to engage in life in a peaceful manner. We don't want to get involved in violence. The vast majority of people, at the very least, out of convenience sake, are peaceful. Now, that can switch really quickly because whenever people start losing food and water, shelter, etc., their demand for certain necessities goes up and their willingness to do violence increases. So, um, and there's really nothing that the government can do about that per se. Uh, they're not as good, like I said originally, the peace in society is not maintained by them. They take a lot of credit for it, but the peace in society ultimately is up to us. There's not much they can do to um, thwart the violence of an entire society caving in on itself, even if they wanted to. And I don't think the majority of the tyrants in government actually care I think the vast majority of them are just fine using the ignorance of society against itself to keep themselves in a powerful position. People think that politicians ultimately are the key to change in society. People think that politicians are ultimately the key to security in society. People think politicians are ultimately the key to prosperity in society. Fill in the blank. They're not, but they're perfectly happy with letting you think that they are. So um, it's time for you to grow up and realize that they're not and then behave accordingly, prepare yourself accordingly. Because if, you know, societies fall, they do. His, if, you, if you've ever taken a history class, you'd know societies fall. Genocides happen. Uh, sorry, my dog's sneezing in the background. Genocides do happen. Um, Americans, people in the West... We are very spoiled. We've gotten so uh, fattened in a polite society. It's a great thing. It's a good thing. I, I don't take. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate being able to live in a polite society where where everybody, for the most part, gets along. And uh, the violence that you do see occurs on the news and not in your actual living room. So. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people in the West, they're too pampered. They don't understand that this sort of thing, the deaths of millions of people, it's really uh, kind of just dirt under the universe's fingernail, uh, so to speak. It's it's really nothing. It, it it It's not out of the ordinary. So you need to get to the point where you understand this sort of thing. It's up to you to defend yourself, to form connections with people who can effectually help you to defend yourself and your family and your community. So you need to get prepared. So we're going to talk about this now.
So, um, why is the civilian rifle build going to be so different from a military rifle build? And by I know there's a lot of variance whenever we talk about this because there's countless different military rifle builds, right? Really depends on um, what's their MOS, what's their standard operating procedure for the unit, what um, you know, what theater they're deployed in, what their standing orders are, uh, and the list goes on and on. So, uh, by the way, I, sh- I need to say this just for disclosure. I'm not in the military, and I've never been in the military. I think my perspective excels in the fact that I have a general knowledge of what the military has and can do from like a textbook standpoint. But better, like what makes my perspective excel is that I can take what I understand about weaponry and apply it to a civilian mindset. So things that abstract things that civilians don't necessarily consider whenever building their rifles, such as theater, you know, like a combat theater, logistics, supply, um, and varying, variate, you know what I'm trying to say, um, a bunch of different nuances that affect how you can use your rifle before you ever even set it up, like what situation is going to dictate the implementation of your rifle. So, for example, um, the civilian rifle market or weapon market in general often follows downstream from that of the military. The reason being, well, due to uh, hefty military contracts, governmental contracts with various uh, you know, arms companies, those are like the big deal for arms companies. They're going to set market trends. So if a if the military decides they want to take on contracts for a certain type of rifle, then the arms manufacturers are likely going to shift market trends over to that because it's the biggest demand. So their supply is going to fit to meet that. You'll see the civilian market shift, one, because the the arms manufacturers are focusing so much on supplying that product and it's just going to end up in the civilian market eventually two because let's just face it a lot of civilians look to the military to set our standards for how we build our weaponry how we want our weaponry and often not to our advantage so an example of that is Let's say you're, well, let's just do it right now. Uh, Middle East, okay? Middle East engagements um, over the course of the past two decades. Focus has been primarily on, um, you know, duty rifles. Obviously, I'm going to pick a weapon choice that is also available to a civilian. So I'm not going to go with some sort of squad automatic weaponry or some sort of grenade launcher or something like that, or a vehicle-mounted um, heavy uh, heavy machine gun or something like that. I'm not going to go with that. Obviously, this obviously the market is there for those. I'm gonna I'm talking about you know the the differences between what a civilian can own and what the military implements that's similar to the civilian side. So, duty style rifle, um, you know, like an M16 M4 at least 16 inch barrel generally for a patrol rifle um 
and with an optic and the uh, rifle round 556 um, so why 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 was it like this well the theater of engagement in a lot of cases most cases obviously for Afghanistan is going to be arid mountainy des- arid, arid mountains and in Iraq it's going to be a desert mixture between desert and kind of like a shanty town or and um, kind of the bigger areas, it's going to be more like a desert township or a a desert city. So these environments allow you to get away with a five five six round, right, out of a medium to long long barrel because you're shooting at medium to long distances, and your the round of your rifle is not passing through much of a i guess a disturbance is what you could call call it here in here in the south united states we call it bush you know trees uh various vegetation so what i'm getting at is a rifle in use by the military for the past 20 to 30 years is not necessarily at all the rifle that would be of optimal use here in the united states at any given location unless you're in the mojave desert or something like that uh, for the past 20 to 30 years. It's just not the same. Yet, the civilian market has been led undoubtedly by the military market. You can't tell me that the civilian market, this shift this to Gucci ARs and whatnot, they're great rivals. They're fantastic rifles. I have an AR. But the fact of the matter is, is that this our, the civilian market has been led, in fact, by... Uh, the military, you know, the military market. And it's not just because the rifles worked well over there. Because a lot of guys would say, well, yeah, the conditions were kind of right, but the the rifle still didn't perform as good as we had wanted it to over there. There's guys who went over there to Afghanistan or Iraq and ended up hating their service rifle. Why? Well, because this is, it's a generic rifle a generic round it was needed for supply purposes it was a distinctively american rifle at the time carbine easily supplied supplied you could get a good contract with a arms manufacturer fairly cheap um and actually a lot of (laughs) a lot of military service rifles ended up being kind of junk you can talk to um various uh grunts you know go go and talk to a grunt at some time who has uh who had a a good perspective like a good perspective i'm not talking about just any guy who went and joined the marines or army who didn't have any idea about weapons beforehand and after they got out of the military they didn't understand anything about weapons going afterwards either i'm talking about someone who has a good understanding of knowledge go and ask them what their the generic service rifle that they were issued like what was its quality many of them will tell you yeah it was kind of junk why is that because um in the pursuit of getting affordable contracts the military sometimes goes with a budget option best way of putting it um and again, I'm not in the military. I, this is not like something like anecdotal evidence. It's not something that I have firsthand experience with. Like I went to a military armory or something like that and picked out a rifle and saw that it was junk. I'm not saying that that's, that's the way it is. I'm saying like empirically you can like 
look back through contract records. You can go and talk to guys with who they themselves had firsthand experience. And this is something that you hear a lot. Go talk to a Marine. Ask him what his gear is like. I can look at pictures of Marines right now, guys who are, you know, supposedly combat ready out there patrolling around the Pacific Ocean on boats, uh, you know, patrolling around the Indian Ocean on on boats, just waiting for something something to go off so they can go uh, crush skulls. Look at their loadouts. Look at their kit. A lot of times it's garbage. <laughs> Sorry. And they'll tell you that. They'll tell you that a lot of times their their kit's garbage. Um, th- that's that's a meme in the military is that the Marines get horrible gear it, because their budgets are low. Right? And so so this is often going to reflect in their rifle builds as well. 5.56, five, easy to produce. You know, it's cost effective. You can get a ton of guys to carry a ton of rounds because they're lightweight easily manufactured cheap to buy you can buy bulk millions and millions and millions of rounds if you're a large governmental or agency you can buy tons of rounds and especially once the once the uh, arms manufacturers acquire that economy of scale which means you have put in all the infrastructure that you need to be pumping out those things in your contract uh, those those uh the services in your contract once you get get those infrastructures in place, once you get those those skills in the hands of your laborers, you can just pump them out, pump them out, and so you get yourself you get a governmental agency that's locked down into a numerous decade long contract uh, for weaponry because it's well you can easily supply your guys with it. So, how does this relate to a civilian loadout? Well. First off, I would say you need to look at your logistical support. So if you're ever going to be let's let's be honest with this, if there's a collapse scenario, domestic conquest or foreign invasion, you're going to have to be with other guys. You're going to have to be a warfighter with other warfighters, right? Um this means training before beforehand. It means arming yourselves with um complementary complementary if not uh you know the similar or same rifle setups so that you're shooting the same ammo you can share ammo you can supply whenever you're you're you know you're bringing in a crate of ammo it's not just for one guy it's for like the entire team um and then you need to make sure that that ammunition is readily available are you going to if at any time you're out and about looking for ammo is that something that you're going to find or is that something that you've got a specialty order from you know a, a soviet style comblock nation so for example is if you're rocking ak's i love my ak but i love it but the fact of the matter is is that there's really no viable domestic producer of 545 by 39 or 762 by 39 to my knowledge so um, in a collapse scenario, how readily available is that going to be? Now, it's, it might be fairly common in the United States to, to find it in various households, right? But it's not like it's going to be continued to be like a, 
you know, even uh, something that a lot of guys don't understand is um, in a collapse scenario, you might not have a full society collapse. So, in in countries where that we're experiencing revolutions and stuff like that, law kind of fell through the roof, right? The, the law, the rule of law, kind of fell apart. But people still went to their jobs. People still went to the store and bought groceries, stuff like that. Why? So that's that's uh, something that a lot of guys they just can't even comprehend because they have that mentality that the law itself is what sustains society, right? But it's not true. It's not true. The, this the, the need to live is what sustains your life, not the law. And so people will continue. You know, they, the guys who make bullets, they'll make, keep making bullets. The the guys who keep make guns, they'll keep making guns. Just as as long as they've got a demand, they'll keep fitting that supply. The guy over at the grocery store, he'll keep working at the grocery store unless it gets too dangerous for him to do so. Right. So, so if a if there's some sort of societal climactic event, right, and the stores are still open, will you be able to find ammo? Now, another issue is that that's not even, you, you might not even be able to find ammo even if the Soviet Comblock style ammos, you know, aren't available. So let's say 556. Five, well, what's going on right now? This COVID-19 thing hit Italy really hard, right? And Italy is where a lot of the NATO style ammunition primers for the cartridges are made. So <laughs> you have – and everybody's buying up the ammo that does exist and the ammo that is being made can't be made fast enough. So we have what's called an economic short, right? It's a shortage. So the cost of ammunition is ex- exceptionally high. It's, it's nearly a dollar <laughs> for 5.56, nearly a dollar. And what is it for um, 760 by 39 or 545 by 39? less than half a dollar if you order it online so we got ourselves a little predicament it's not obviously COVID-19 is not a full collapse but it certainly collapsed and like caused society to collapse in certain ways last year I couldn't go to my job for half a year last year not because I didn't want to I was fine with going into my job my boss asked me a few times hey can you come in to do this I was like fine yeah I don't care I'll come in and it didn't bother me at all but a lot of people were just scared out of their out of, <laughs> scared out of their heads, and so, you know, obviously society collapsed in certain fa- in certain faculties. So, these are nuances to logistics that you have to consider, right? And everybody wants to think about certain things like, oh, I don't know, barrel length. We can get into that too, but barrel length is a, a huge issue right now. Like a, and I say right now, it's always been like that. Guys have always been wanting to narrow in on the complexities of how to set up their rifle, what is applicable to them, which is fine. But guys love to talk about the tactical before they think about the practical thing. Um, so uh, let's let's go into the rifle barrel length, right? So um, military style, what has been it recently? Well, it's been... <laughs> really dependent on your specialty in the military. If you're like super fast operator 
techy cool guy, then you're probably rocking a, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 inch barrel with a suppressor on it. They go with a short barrel because it allows them to put a suppressor on the rifle without it being an ungodly length, right? Um, and then they go and they hit a compound by doing an aerial insertion from a helicopter. And then they go in, do whatever it is. They do some intel destruction or they do some sort of hostage taking where they go in and they take a warlord or something like that or, or destroy some cache of ammo or something like that. And then they beat feet and get out. They, you know, maybe move a mile or maybe not even move at all and they're just picked up by a air evacuation or maybe they're picked up by humvee down the road or something like that case in point they (laughs) you know this this idealism of what the military does is not relatable to civilian life how many of you civilians can be um successfully inserted insertion inserted into a firefight with a helicopter how many of you, after a firefight, can be picked up by a Humvee with a, a heavy machine gun mounted on the top of it? And so, you, you know, you know your ass is covered. How many of you can have a, I don't know, a Cobra gunship circling overhead? Uh, you know, it's a, helico- a helicopter gunship circling over overhead, making sure that, and, you know, I, I don't know if Cobras circle or something. I'm pretty sure they just do strafing runs or something like that but you you get what i'm trying to say how many of you guys can have a gunship covering your ass while you're assaulting some compound or something like that as if a civilian would actually do that in a in a like a, a national defense scenario probably not many so why why am i talking like this because it's going to what operation type you engage in is going to affect on a you know a specific level on an intrinsic level is going to s- determine how you set up your rifle it doesn't matter if some spec ops guy sets up his rifle in a certain way that doesn't mean you need to replicate it because at the end of the day you're not doing spec ops guy stuff and so an example guys love their um their rifles with a short barrel and you ask them why, and they say, because it's great in CQB, right? It's great in close quarters battles, close close quarter conflict or whatever. And so in a purely like home defense scenario, that might be fine. And you ask them, well, at what point would you actually use it like that? Use it like as an assaultive way in a in a house? And they say, well, if I were to be assaulting that house, and you say first those the guys who do that they get inserted there right that a lot of guys that go into a house with a short barrel rifle to do cqb are inserted into there or there's a perimeter set up around the house and they're safe up until that point you a civilian in a without rule of law scenario how do you get to that house right Let's say that house is in the in the street in the city, and you've got 300, 400 yards of straight street, right, of highway around that house. 
it, you step out onto the road and you can look down, you know, 50 to 200, 300 yards down the, down the street and you've got your 10-inch barreled rifle there in your hands. So 95% of your traversing across land, even in the city, is done with in, within distances of like 300, 400 yards of open viewing with your eyes down roads and and you're carrying a 10 inch and and the, you know you're carrying a 10 inch rifle just so that whenever you get to the house that you're going to perform that whatever operation on um that uh you know you have that 10 inch barrel so that you could be good at CQB right but 95 90% of whatever you were doing beforehand was not CQB in the least, even in an urban setting. How about um, rifle rounds in terms of effectiveness, right? Why would you choose, you know, if you do like 556, five, maybe from a military perspective, it's good for supply. Great, great argument. Actually, probably the best argument that you could ever make, Right, it's based on supply, what can, what can you supply yourself with? What can you store up beforehand with? But from an effective, like a ballistics perspective, um, five five six, it was not adopted for ballistic performance. I can tell you that there were things done to the uh, bullet to over the course of time since I don't know before Vietnam to make it better. At, at killing people, right? Like uh, having the bullet fragment, having the bullet yaw and tumble and, and whatnot, d- different bullet designs, different boat tail structures on on the bullet and whatnot, but that's that it didn't start off that way. The 5.56 wasn't made that way to be this exceptional performer. It was made to be easily produced, to be put in, put in large quantities in the hands of troops because ground wars nowadays are are fought and won by not really won but they're fought with forward operating bases with large amounts of troops patrolling in between the forward operating bases not through actual land conflict where you carry like entrenchment tools and you dig yourself in and you can stay there for a day and then you move on and dig yourself into another uh fighting position with your entrenchment tools and you're overcoming your enemy with superior marksmanship as opposed to just getting a, a crap ton of guys to patrol for a few hours, popping off some rounds at, at enemies over the course of you know a few hours and then beating feet back to your forward operating base. That's how a lot of ground, you know, through volume, not through quality, through quantity. And so uh, they were able to guys in the military in the US military and various other militaries with the 545 round with the Russians with the Soviets in Afghanistan the same thing was done they were able to skimp on by with you know adequate bullet performance because the situation was right the combat theater was right what do i mean it was an open terrain they didn't have a lot of brush trees foliage to contend with open air terrain it's a lot of arid even in the towns it's primarily there's not a lot of barriers the mud huts you know they're effectively like adobe you can just punch right through them even with a 556 um 
that if you're fighting out the countryside, like I said, not a lot of foliage. Um, yes, there's certain areas in Afghanistan and Iraq that are different than that, but the vast majority of it is just, you know, arid mountainy terrain. In the United States, it's completely different. In the southern area of the United States that I live in, for three quarters of the year, it is practically jungle here. And I'm not even that far south. If I go out, if you look on a map, right? Look on a map. Um, look on a map and uh, just like in your state map, right? How much of that is countryside versus city? 99.99% of it's probably countryside. Uh, so that's all of that is vegetation that you'd, you'd have to contend with potentially, right? If you were to leave the city that are, that are going to be occupied in a foreign invasion, domestic conquest, um, without rule of law scenario, cities are going to be occupied probably. And you'll like, like any given partisan throughout history, you'll probably have to go out to the countryside and survive out there and perform military style operations from your bases out in the countryside. So out there, you'll have to contend with harsh vegetation. How do you contend with harsh vegetation? Heavy duty bullets that pass, um, through them fast and the bullet shape is not it it is you know it punches through vegetation enough so that the bullet path is not deviated from its intended target right that was a huge issue in vietnam with the 556 in the the m16 huge issue is just you shoot at something and it's a hit or miss if you literally hit or miss is that if you are punching through vegetation with your 556 um it's hard to punch through it because the lightweight bullet is easily deviated from its intended path by vegetation not even not that it's stopped it's not you know it's not like it hits a leaf and then bounces off or something like that it's just that impacting with physical objects on its way to hit its target causes it to deviate from its intended trajectory that's physics for you the heavier the bullet the um wider the nose the wider the 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 tail um basically the chunkier your bullet is it's going to be uh, better at punching through vegetation now <laughs> the bigger the bullet is whenever you're trying to shoot flat out in a desert it's not that's not needed necessarily a bigger bullet is not needed it's definitely not necessarily going to be better for flat range shooting you know like if you're shooting out at enemies in a farther distance say like you're you're you live in some sort of arid tundra or you know something along the lines like that maybe you live in the midwest and you deal with planes this is in you know, by rolling plains, grasslands, stuff like that. And vegetation, it really isn't that big of a deal for you to deal with. And range is. Then a 5.56 makes a lot more sense. So these are some things to think about. You know, obviously there's some other things that we can go into, like attachments. So, and obviously attachments is just that coined phrase from Call of Duty. What do I mean by that? Lights optics, IR illumination and uh, IR designation, you know, lasers, suppressors, comps, flash hiders, 
grips, stock alterations, whatnot. When is this needed? Well, a lot of guys just throw an E-Tech on it, right? Or an aim point, they call it good. Kind of defeating the purpose of a rifle. Combat engagements out in the field being from 300 to 400 yards. And with an EOTech, you can hardly identify. I can, I wear glasses, right? I can hardly identify a person at 150, 200 yards. I can see that it's a person there. And generally, I can make out who it is, but I'm not sure. And it'd be, I kind of squint my eyes at them, right? And I have a feeling, I, I wear glasses, but a lot of guys also have that issue. And they might not even need any um, you know, enhancement for their eyes. It's, the fact of the matter is, is that whenever you're trying to recognize something at distance, it helps to have magnification. Basic rule of firearm safety. You don't shoot at something um, unless you know what it is, right? You, what's, what's the basic rule that you only point your gun at something that you intend to destroy, right? Or you only shoot something that you intend to destroy, I guess is a, even a better way of saying it. But the the safety the safety rule is you don't aim your gun at something that you don't intend to destroy. Well, how are you going to figure out if you intend to destroy that if you can't even identify what the target is? Right, it, the the very basic on a very basic level, your rifle attachments need to not be something to make your rifle Gucci or make you super fast when changing between those steel targets out on a flat range. Your rifle attachments need to make your rifle a better rifle. So an LP, uh, LPVO, like low power variable optic, um, something with a illuminated reticle that uh, hopefully has good uh, you know, windage and bullet drop markings and on the on the reticle, the ACSS reticle by uh, what is it? Primary Arms is a really good reticle. The EOTech's reticle is good. The issue is is that in a lot of EOTech, uh, a lot of EOTech, you know, sites, it's only an illuminated reticle. There's no etched reticle in it. So in other words, you are completely at the mercy of the batteries with some sort of LPVO scope you're not at the mercy of the uh you know of the batteries as long as you have an etched reticle um so my go-to would probably be an lpvo if you're running a 10 inch barrel i haven't you know i know i kind of railed on it earlier i have nothing against a 10 inch barrel so long as you're using it purely within the confines that it's intended to use uh, and that you're thinking it through. It doesn't make sense for you to take these things out. It doesn't make sense for you to take an AK pistol or take a 10-inch AR-15 and go and try to turn it into some sort of battle rifle because it's not. And you shouldn't be trying to change it into something like that just because it's fun. You need to be trained with it as it's intended to be used. So, you know, train it as if it's your personal defense weapon that you keep in a backpack. Train it as if it's a personal defense weapon that you keep in a car or that you would use in a convoy if you and your if you and your buddies in a without rule of law scenario made a run to the grocer and you're worried that you're going to be ransacked by, you know, foreign invaders or something like that or uh, some sort of sort of road pirates or something. Uh, in a Mad Max scenario, 
and you're using it as a personal defense weapon that you would use shooting vehicle to vehicle or you know if your vehicle gets stopped and you've got to do a counter ambush out of a vehicle then it's a weapon that was easily stored on your person in the vehicle or say you know concealability like i mentioned earlier personal defense weapon in a backpack self-defense from your um from your home or even i can i can even come up with an idea of a deep in a woods rifle being a short barrel because effectively if you're if the jungle that you're operating in is so dense that the effective fighting range between you and any given target that presents itself is only going to be 50 to 100 yards max then that um then that short barrel rifle can be perfect honestly because it allows you really good maneuverability in the dense foliage and it's not the fact that it it has a shorter effective range isn't diminished because the effective range of the combat of of the firefight is not super long just so long as you're using a rifle round that is allowing you to punch through the foliage right so if you're if you have a 556 be using a super um heavy round like a 77 grainer or something like that and then you're punching you're golden right you're punching right through the through that that brush hopefully and um just be sure if you're in the if you're in the jungle in the woods in the dense woods you're carrying lots of ammo because you're probably out on a patrol of some sort maybe a recon patrol or a security patrol and if you're a civilian then you have no backup you have no fire support you are your own fire support you and your squad so you need to be carrying ammo like your life depends on it because it will right so nowadays the the standard thing is guys carry six plus one max right one in the rifle six on a plate carrier something like that why because they ride in technicals they ride in vehicles something along those lines or they're moving back to their forward operating base after a few hours of patrols you you're not going to be like that man if you're on the field you're on the field and you might be like that for weeks i know that sucks i know that sounds bad but it it can be like that and you need to carry ammo like like it's going to reflect what you're doing okay you need to get this in your mind you are a citizen what does a citizen mean you're actively contributing so if you're an armed citizen you're actively contributing to the defense of a free nation whether it happens or not is you know it's a matter of speculation many people would argue that it is it is in the process of happening right now you can make you up your own mind but regardless you need to prepare okay so i know i didn't necessarily define what was the ideal civilian rifle right because the whole point is that it it depends entirely on your logistics on your um, combat theater on um, various nuances that are going to make up effectively your life and so you need to be able to define you need to look at the various pieces of a rifle various components of your supply and figuring out how you set up your rifle okay so I guess this could probably be a part one of a of a 
discussion on what would make a good civilian fighting rifle because there's just so much to go into. But um, I hope I gave you a good idea of what you can use. Um, let me know. You know, um, Telegram is there. You guys can shoot me shoot me up with questions and uh, uh, I'll try to answer them or I can even work them into a next episode. So um, I know I might have stepped on some toes because everybody hates it when you criticize their gear. But um, I hope you take any form of, of criticism like this as a way to get better. So, all right, guys, God bless. Have a good night. Stay golden, boys.